everyone doing today? Welcome to What Would Kay Say? I am your host, Kay Edwards. I want to say thank you for joining me this morning. But before I begin, I want to remind everyone that City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours. These tours are designed to give you a unique opportunity to learn the history of the New York City neighborhoods that you are currently running through while you're getting your workout on. You can choose from 23 different tours of neighborhoods in Manhattan, Queens, Bronx, and Brooklyn. For the list of neighborhoods and a full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Today, we are going to conclude our lessons in civic education. For those of you who might have missed our earlier discussions concerning the Electoral College and other civic topics, check out my archives on my show page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com. You can find them also on iTunes and Spotify. Now, as I was saying, we have been discussing civic education 
which is the study of the theoretical, political, and practical aspects of citizenship, as well as its rights and duties. So we've talked about the Electoral College and how that came about. We discussed the differences between democracy, a democracy and a republic, and the basis of those forms of government with the discussion about our political party system and its two major players, the Democrats and the Republicans. So today, we're going to go more in depth with our party system and talk more about the Democrats and the Republicans. Now, there are several different parties here in the United States. We have the Green Party, we have the Independent Party, the Working Family Party, but for, day, for today's discussion, we're only going to concern ourselves with the major two. Now let's begin with a little background of the party system here in America. The first two party system consisted of the Federalist Party, which supported the ratification of the Constitution, and the Democratic Republican Party, or the Anti-Administration Party, Anti-Federalist which opposed the power, which actually opposed the powerful central government that the Constitution established when it took effect in 1789. And since that time, party realignments have occurred periodically in response to social and cultural movements and also economic developments. The two-party system that we have today consists of the Democratic Party, and the Republican Party. But let us remember that although those these names have been in existence since before the Civil War, they have not always represented the same ideology or electoral colleges. These two parties have won every United States presidential election since 1852 and have controlled the United States Congress since at least 1856. Now, there are many voters and political candidates that choose not to identify with a political party. You can see this when you voted on November 3rd. The two candidates running for president were listed across various parties, right? You saw Biden under Democrat and working families, and then you saw um, Trump under Republican and I think conservative or yeah I think there was conservative party I think that was one of the lists in in New York because the different parties that we have here each state has the different list of alternative parties that you can vote under or register under so when we look at the, the Constitution um, when we look at the Constitution of the United States we see that the Founding Fathers did not originally intend for American politics to be partisan, right? Federalist Papers writers Hamilton and Madison wrote specifically about the dangers of domestic political factions. And our first president, George Washington, wasn't a member of any political party when he got elected or during his whole time in tenure as president. Washington actually hoped that political parties would not be formed, fearing conflict and stagnation, which he outlined in his farewell address. 
Now we're going to take a look at the three. We're going to take a look at his farewell address, right? Because in this speech, Washington called for the American people to remain unified, to resist the rise of political factions and avoid the influence of foreign policies. Now, when you listen to all that, what, what Washington was hoping would not happen, and look at us today, that's exactly what happened. It's like as if Washington was looking into the future. So let's explore the three main points that Washington stressed in his farewell speech. The first point, the importance of unity. Washington urged Americans not to put their regional and sectional interests above the interests of the nation as a whole, reminding the nation of the struggle that they endured fighting for their independence and liberty. The second point, the worst enemy of government loyalty to party over nation. Let me say that again. The second point was the worst enemy of government is loyalty to party over nation. Washington stressed the danger of letting regional loyalties dominate over loyalty to the nation as a whole. He feared that it would lead to factionalism or the development of competing political parties. <laughs> well, what do you know, Washington? If Americans voted according to party loyalty rather than the common interest of the nation, Washington feared it would foster a spirit of revenge and enable the rise of cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men who would upsert themselves to the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Hmm. Once again, it seems like Washington was looking ahead into the future, but more so he knew that power was capable. He knew what power was capable of doing to men and he knew power would bring out the worst in men. Now, the third and final point that Washington stressed was the danger of foreign entanglements. Washington believed that partisanship would open the door to foreign influence and corruption. He didn't mind America being on good terms with nations to trade, but passionate attachments to others should be excluded. And although Washington saw the need for the nations to involve themselves in foreign affairs, particularly in the case of war or other emergencies, he argued that America must stay clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world. It would be safe to say that Washington would not have approved of alliances between nations. Now, at that time, England was the most foreign entity that the United States had to worry about because Europe had its own complicated interests and Washington believed that the United States should keep its distance from European affairs. Foreign policy should be based on neutrality, which would have been the safest way to maintain national unity and stability. Now, it's also important to note that Washington was not limited to serving only two terms as when he was in office, right? 
like our presidents do today. The reason that Washington only served two terms is that he believed if he were to die in office, he would have established a precedent that the presidency was a lifetime appointment. So, thinking of the good of the nation and the good of the country, he stepped away from being president to make way for his successor. This act proved his commitment to democracy rather than power. Do you see how the principles are lost along the way if not consistently spoken about? Well, actually, that's not true. Because before this presidency, we never had an issue with the president not wanting to vacate the seat. And here it is, Washington, all the way back in 1852, he saw, he, it's like he was looking at 2020 at that very moment. So by the time Washington was ready to step down from office, political parties were already beginning to emerge. It was the first time that we had the beginnings of the American two-party system. These parties came to being with the help of Washington's immediate circle of advisors. First, we have the Federalists, and they were those who favored a strong united central government, they favored close ties to Britain, and they favored a centralized banking system and close links between the government and men of wealth. Now, all this was created by Hamilton, who was the first secretary of the treasury. Now, on the other side, we have the Republicans, later called the Democratic Republicans, led by Southerners like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who strongly opposed Hamilton's economic policies. They were also not in favor of the Federalist stand when it came to foreign affairs. They favored having closer relations with France over Great Britain. Now let's not get confused with the Republicans, which were then called the Democratic Republicans, because that's not the Republicans of today. So now we're going to go in to the Democratic Republican Party, the ones that was founded by Madison and Thomas Jefferson. Now, in 1844, the party changed its name to what we now know it to be as the Democratic Party. Both parties became broad-based voting coalitions, and the race issue pulled newly enfranchised African Americans, which were known as the freedmen, into the Republican Party. Now you see what I'm saying? The Democratic Republican Party, their name changed to the Democratic Party. And the Federalists, their name changed to the Republican Party. So now, as I was saying, most African Americans joined the Republican Party, while white Southerners which were known as the Redeemers, joined the Democratic Party. The Democratic Coalition also had conservative pro-business Democrats. And the Republican Coalition had businessmen as well, shop owners, skilled craftsmen, clerks, and professionals who were attracted to the party's modernization policies. 
Now, this is like, now we're going to see how these parties morph into what they are today, which is is not even a picture of what they were before. So you see what they started out, right? You see what their core foundation was based upon. The Democratic Party's foundation was based on, okay, here it is. During the 19th century, the Democratic Party supported and tolerated slavery, and it opposed civil rights reforms, right, after the, after, after the American Civil War in order to retain the support of Southern voters. Because, you know, in the South, they wanted to uphold slavery. So the Democratic Party became the party of the Southern voters. Now, here's where things start to change. The Democratic Party drastically changed their ideal, their ideological thoughts and they literally reinvented themselves how they did it was when roosevelt became president and he had his new deal in the 1930s because you know that was around that was the great depression so he wanted to bring the country out of the depression the party since roosevelt was a democrat the party began supporting organized labor the civil rights of minorities, and the progressive reform. The Democrats positioned themselves more towards liberalism. The Democratic Party built a coalition of white liberals, African Americans, Hispanics, and white urban progressives in the Northeast and coastal areas. So now you see, because Roosevelt became president, and during his time in his presidency, you had the Great Depression, and he knew he had to pull the country out of this depression, and he started the New Deal. But that New Deal started socialist programs where people was getting help from the government. And that's what flipped the Democratic Party to align with their then president and follow the same the same thoughts and ideologies that he believed in. And that's what turned the Democratic Party. Now, right, while all this was taking place, now listen to this, while all this was taking place, the conservatives increasingly dominated the GOP, right, which was the Republican Party. So as the civil rights movement and the dismantling of Jim Crow laws in the 50s and 60s visibly deepened existing racial tensions in southern United States, the Republican politicians, now this is where it really, this is where it really gets sticky. Mainly, it was already starting, the Republicans was already starting to see how the southern whites were unhappy with the fact that the Democrats had started turning towards their liberal views. But when Richard Nixon was running for president and Barry Goldwater was running for senator, they developed a strategy that would successfully add to the political realignment of many white conservative voters in the South. These voters would have traditionally supported the Democratic Party rather than the Republican Party, but because of the realignment of the Democratic Party, 
coupled with the racial tension of the 60s, these voters gravitated towards the Republican Party, which had now moved more towards the right. So now, here it is. Here it is when stuff hits the fan. Richard Nixon evoked a racially based Southern strategy. Now, the strategy was in effect, like I said, before Nixon came along, but he just capitalized on it. The thought was to use top-down narratives to politically realign the South, which suggested that the Republican leaders constantly, consciously appeal to white Southern racial grievances in order to gain their support. They did this by appealing to the racism towards African Americans. The Republicans wanted to hold on to power due to the demographic changes that had taken place within the country. So they set their claims on Southern states following the civil rights movements using a combination of racist agendas. Now, this strategy was successful and won Nixon the presidency in 1968. Now, at this point, conservatives and the Republican Party became the dominant party in the South, rural areas, and the suburbs. So now here it is. More white people that were upset with with all the civil rights movement, it was the same mentality that that existed when the whole succeeding from the union and having to fight the civil war all those white people that were upset behind all of that because the democratic party had changed because remember the democratic party that was their party back then but when the democratic party swung and changed their views to line up with roosevelt's it left them without any any party because they weren't going to stand behind what the Democrats now stood for. So they gravitated to the Republican Party. And at that time, Nixon, being smart as he was, they didn't call him Tricky Dick for nothing, he saw that there was a whole population of voters that were not represented. So what he did, he played towards what they believed in, and they got him elected. Now here, listen to this. With the, with the perception that the Republican Party became the backbone of the white supremacy in the South, right, particularly when Nixon and all them were doing their campaigning, it was difficult for the Republican Party to win back support of black voters in the South. Because remember, it was the Republican Party that was the anti-slavery party and they actually drew many African Americans when they first start, when they first started up. The first seven African Americans elected to the 41st and 42nd U.S. Congress were Republicans, and today there still are many African Americans that belong to the Republican Party, believing in the fundamental ideals that founded the party in the beginning. You see. Now here it is. It's worthy to note that in 2005, the Republican National Committee chairman apologized to the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, for exploiting racial 
polarization to win elections and ignoring the black vote. So you see, the parties that change, parties begin to change to suit their agendas for the moment. That is why it's so important to vote for the person whom you feel will best serve the country and its people overall, not the party line just because you happen to belong to that party. I believe that if we actually took the time to see what each candidate stood for, what is needed in the country at the moment for at the moment of the elections, and who is best suited to deliver the solution to the country's problems, it should be the individual that receives that should be the individual that receives our vote. It should be clear to us that we don't need to vote along party lines, right? Voting in that manner would lessen party divisions and strife. It would bring unity to the country, just like Washington wanted from the beginning. He wanted unity through a common cause, not a party alliance, right? But Somehow we've gone astray. But if you see how both parties started out in the beginning, they were actually opposite of what they actually represent today. And we have people that are still divided due to those, those fundamental thoughts of what the party was founded on. They still believe in those, in those thoughts. They just happen to be now members of the opposite party whereas the ones that were democrats were now are now republicans and the ones that were republicans are now democrats so there you have it folks that wraps up our civic education discussion and i hope that in the last few weeks we've uh, you know we've talked about some very important issues i hope that i've been very informative and perhaps teaching you something that you were not aware of or reinforcing what you had already knew but probably had forgotten. So I hope you all enjoyed that. I know I enjoyed giving it to you. It was enlightening for me on a lot of um, levels as well. So with that, we're going to take a music break. You have been listening to What Would Kay Say on Radio Free Brooklyn.
Thank you. 
What would Kay say here on Radio Free Brooklyn? Now, it's time for the part of the show that we call Op-Ed. Now, this week in Op-Ed, I have a number of topics I want to discuss. First, I want to start off with the infighting in the Democratic Party. Now, since Biden-elect was, Biden was chosen to be president-elect, and Kamala Harris was chosen to be vice president-elect. We now have the progressives in the Democratic Party putting mandates on the Biden-Harris team to follow through with what's been going on in climate, in climate change. They want Biden and Harris to adopt the Green New Deal which is an ambitious environmental plan to combat climate change and also tackle inequality in um, communities. Now, let's see exactly what it is that they're talking about. They are saying that, and I say they, meaning Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, along with What's the other one's names? Oh, along with Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Talib. Those are the ones that the new, uh, those were the first term Democratic um, Congresswomen that they call the Squad, which is a group of progressives. And they are now calling for Biden to adopt this new green deal which they say he needs to he needs to implement that plan so now we have this going on because they had a rally the other day outside of the democrat national committee headquarters and they all went there to tell biden that they wanted him to adopt this deal and put it into motion 
So now as if we didn't have enough problems, the man can't even get, he can't even get his briefs from the president that's sitting in there now. So he has his own party now yelling outside of headquarters, telling him what they want him to do. So he's going to have, He's going to have things to deal with on both sides before he even sits down come January. He's already fighting battles, not even to mention Corona. Right. So we have that infighting in the Democratic Party. We don't know if Nancy Pelosi is going to be um, the speaker again because they don't want her up there. So we'll see how that pans out. And also with that. Let's look at what we were talking, like I just said about the coronavirus. We now have a vaccine, right? We have a vaccine. Hold on a second. We have a vaccine, right? That's like major. Two companies, Pfizer and Moderno, I think the other one's name, Moderno, that have said that they have a cure for the coronavirus. Well, not a cure, but a vaccine, meaning like it would be like the flu shots that we take. But now, honestly, when you think about it, how many of you are going to actually go and take that vaccine right away? I'm just curious. And I wish I was in the studios because I could have got some phone calls pertaining to this. But I would love it if you would write me an email on my email address is what would K say at Gmail dot com or send me something on um Instagram and let me know what WWK say today, what you feel about this. What what do you actually feel about what's happening with this coronavirus vaccine? Do you think that it's something that is safe? Do you think that it was rushed? Do you think that it's actually going to combat the virus? I mean, it has a lot of potential. Dr. Fauci is um, bigging it up. So we'll see what happens with that, right? In other news, oh, there was something I wanted to discuss that caught my eye from the news the other day. It had to do with, did you know that when black and brown women go to the hospital with their babies, like for just routine checkups or if they have to be admitted because the baby is sick or if the mother is sick, do you know that they randomly test them for drugs? They just test black and brown mothers and their babies to see if they're on drugs. Now they were doing this without the consent of the parents. And now it's come to light that because this has been happening, let me get exactly who brought this on and what they were saying about it. What, if, what was their name? Let me get this. I think it was the Civil Liberties. Was it them that said that it's illegal? They're calling this racism. They're calling this racism as a threat to public health. But I think it was um, the Civil Liberties Organization that found this out, that they um, started noticing that there was a higher percentage of drug tests being done on newborns and their parents well not their parents but their mothers but their mothers were all women of color so here we go once again every time you think it's like oh okay we're turning a page and things are not that we think that things are getting better but they're being 
addressed because they're being noticed, here comes something else dug up under the rock. It's like every time you turn over a stone, it's something else you're finding out that they've been doing that. Oh my gosh, we had no idea they have been doing this. And it's like, when does it ever really stop? Like, honestly, when does it ever stop or will it ever stop? But with all that, we still have our president sitting in the office talking about he's not leaving until every vote is counted again. And the scary thing about that is the scary thing about him just being in office from now until January 20th is, you know, last week that the defense team had to stop him from trying to initiate a war over in Iraq or Iran or someplace in the Middle East. He was about to initiate another war. It's like, really? You want to initiate a war to take the pressure off of you? We don't need to go into another war. We have enough stuff that we're worried about. The world has enough stuff that they're worried about. Why would you want to initiate another war? But they quickly de-escalated that and got his mind off of that. But it seems like he keeps trying to stir up stuff to divert people's attention from what he's really doing, which is which now begs the question of what is he really doing? What are those papers that he's signing up in that office every day that we don't know that he's putting into effect? And it's going to be one of those issues where when Biden and Harris take office, they're going to get in there and they're going to see when did this happen? How did this happen? We're going to have things that are going to go into effect come next year that none of us are going to be prepared. We're not going to know that it was coming because he's in there signing executive orders like he's signing paychecks. He's just signing away and we don't know what he's signing away. And that's the scary part of this whole ordeal of his last days in office. What is he really in there doing? Especially when he's not on Twitter and he's like, out of sight for like a week or so, what is he really doing? What is he really in there doing? And it's scary. I mean, it's actually scary to think what he could possibly be doing. But I guess come January, we will find out soon enough, right? Like we don't have enough to worry about. But that's all I have for op-ed because it's been basically quiet this week. It's either been quiet this week or I haven't really been paying attention to what's going on. It's one or the other. But with that, I say, of course, you know, we're still with our word of the month, which is hope. Once again, we're all hoping that everything turns out fine and that we won't be any worse for the wares as with everything going on. And our promise. Ooh, what am I going to have for our promise today? Okay, I have it. Our, our promise today is coming from Psalm 16, 9 to 11. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, in Sheol nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And blessed is the reading of the word. And with that, I say, you know what? COVID is still real. I know Thanksgiving is coming up. Yes, Thanksgiving is coming up. It's coming up this Thursday. So with them saying that we shouldn't gather all together, if you are still planning to gather together, please make sure you social distance because I would hate for anyone to get with a family member and become ill. I mean, that's the last thing I any of us want to see for anybody this year. So social distance, keep the crowd down to a minimum, 10 people or less, and be safe, people. Continue to wash your hands constantly, even more so than with the hand sanitizer. Soap and water is soap and water has been the best defense for all germs since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of soap. Washing your hands with soap and water has been the best defense for cleaning anything. So keep your hands washed when you're out in the street, wear your mask. It's supposed to be rainy, I think, so maybe that'll keep the crowds from being out and about in the street. But whatever you do, be safe, enjoy, try not to overindulge as we normally do, but we've been overindulging all year long. So now to do it on Thanksgiving is like, it's not even gonna be exciting anymore. You remember when we used to look forward to this time of the year, like come the holidays and you're like, oh, I could eat all the things that I never used to eat before. I could eat all the cakes and cookies and you know, all the sweets and all the just different foods. We've been on lockdown since what? April, March, April. We've all been eating anything we wanted anyway. So now that the holidays is coming, it's like there's really no big deal to like eat things that you weren't eating before because we were eating everything we weren't eating before the whole entire time. But if you can find something that you have not eaten during this whole Corona lockdown, then enjoy it. (laughs) And with that, I say be kind to one another, be safe, protect one another, help those who are in need because there are a lot of people who will be totally by themselves because of the holiday. I don't even know if they're going to be serving up meals for the homeless like they usually do because of, you know, the whole social gathering thing. But they'll probably be giving the meals out and allowing them to go, I guess, back to the shelters. I'm not even sure how they they're going to do that this year. I haven't really seen or heard anything about that. But in any event, if you have extra food and you want to give to someone who may have less than you, by all means, do it. It'll totally touch their heart, I'm sure. Let's take care of one another, people, because we are all that we have, right? What we have in each other and what we have in Christ. So with that, I say be safe, love on one another, And until we meet again next week, God willing, peace.
Shine